1: Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network. Available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Consequence Podcast Network.
1: Welcome back to Filmography, a Consequence Podcast Network production. I'm your host, Dominic Suzanne Mayer. I'm the film editor at Consequence of Sound. And I'd like to introduce my guest for this, the fourth week of filmography, John Carpenter.
2: This is Mackenzie Gerber of...
0: Of things Of things and, uh, no,
2: (laughs) of the, uh, another Consequence podcast, uh, The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast, as well as Halloweenies.
0: And Clint Worthington, I'm a senior writer for Consequence of Sound and also the co-host and editor of the film website Hollywood and the podcast Nathan Rabin's Happy
1: Cast. Well, aren't you an overachiever, Mr. Worthington?
0: Not to rub it in.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, listeners, you've joined us on a great week because, you know, Halloween is approaching as we record this. We have a nice cocktail in hand. It's autumnal. And we are going to do the Monster Mash. By which I mean, welcome to the fourth episode of Filmography John Carpenter. John Carpenter versus the Monster Mash.
0: If you notice the audio quality uh, having improved over previous episodes, you're welcome, because we are in the palatial Hollywood studios.
1: Palatial indeed. Your sovereign land extends over this entire one are in
2: international waters right now.
1: We are indeed in international waters. We're going to kill a guy before this episode is over.
2: No, I hope it's not me. I think it's probably going to be me.
1: You know then stay tuned. There's the mystery this week. I request that you do it before we get to the ward, though. Okay, there you go. We'll spare you that pain. So if we're talking the Monster Mash, that's both a dumb seasonal title and a way into talking about what I want to focus on in this week's discussion, Carpenter and Monsters, because... A lot of these movies are playing around with the monster movie in some pretty broad and interesting ways. Now, interesting is a weighted term because interesting can mean good interesting. Interesting can mean bad interesting. And interesting can also mean James Woods in high-riding (laughs) dungarees walking away from an exploding motel. God bless that Not looking at it as cool guys do. Right, right. But we'll return to that. To lead us in for this week, I want to put the discussion opening to the two of you and ask, how does a monster movie function in Carpenter's hands?
0: That's a really good question. I mean, because there are obviously those different modes of Carpenter films, right? There are the more explicitly comedic ones, and there are are these. And obviously the four we're talking about here, like, they do exist in more or less wildly different tones. I mean, I would say Prince of Darkness and Mouth of Badness, they're halfway similar, but they they do tend to deal with these otherworldly forces and these ordinary people, more or less. James Woods is no ordinary man. Um, Trying to contend with them, um, and usually not really having a whole lot of uh a whole lot of resources to do it it's very it's very steeped in like lovecraftian mystery people are more or less helpless for against these things and the way he usually films that is with a lot of pov shots a lot of these like strange tracking things and a lot of fun playing with like practical effects and things like that and i I, even within those confines he manages to play with those tones in ways that are occasionally pretty interesting
2: It's very bizarre because you have, he's usually doing these things where they're in contained environments, like uh, Prince of Darkness is pretty much just in the church, but then you have the ward, which is a contained environment and absolutely doesn't work. Uh, And yes, there's a lot of tangible uh, effects that just go away as we continue into his later career, which... Again, just does not quite work. Now I'm used to the Carpenter uh, monster movies, like The Thing, and these things that are are in contained environments, and that's usually where his monster movies work best. I feel.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a claustrophobia to the a couple of the movies that we're discussing this week. Um, This is taking a pretty broad swipe at his latter era style because you have everything from. Prince of Darkness, which came at the end of Carpenter's primary studio era, and you come all the way down to The Ward, which was a return to true indie filmmaking, down to the fact that, that I didn't recognize a single <laughs> studio tag at the top of the movie.
0: Oh, yeah. That looked like one of those, uh, like a Nollywood movie almost, Like with those, <laughs> all those production logos. I expected Wiseau Films to show up It's like up five twice. minutes of those, just yeah.
1: straight. There is a lot of production tags, because that is a lot of wrangling that I don't understand from a legal perspective to get that film into theaters. Yeah, for sure. But we're going to jump a little bit earlier back before the ward and go back to a simpler time, the late 1980s, when John Carpenter was still an indisputable master of his craft. And we're going to kick off this week with Prince of Darkness from 1987, Now, in the case of Prince of Darkness, you have one of Carpenter's most occult movies, and it makes sense given that... You can't really think about Prince of Darkness without thinking about it against the backdrop of the satanic panic of the 80s. Because not only was this a huge cultural thing at the time, but you have Alice Cooper in the film. You have a title invoking both Cooper's record at the time and Ozzy as well. Um, This is a distinctly metal movie in both aesthetic and general visual tone, oddly enough. And... You know, maybe it's the fact that I can't stop thinking about um, Panos Cosmato's film Mandy right now, (laughs) but the idea of metal as a film aesthetic is really interesting as it relates to Carpenter. Who's always been kind of a hard rocker at heart in both, like you know, his sensibilities, but also his visual style, and you really see that here.
0: It's true, and we'll talk about another more explicitly Lovecraftian movie later. But I felt shades of that here too. These these otherworldly forces from this unique dimension that isn't—it's not quite explicitly religious. I mean, there is that interplay between religion and science that happens here, that rather clumsily. But, you know, it, it, you're dealing with that kind of abstraction.
2: It's really confusing. Uh, at one point, I think they even mentioned that Jesus may or may not be extraterrestrial. Maybe. Uh, it, it's it's all over the There's just a lot of stuff place. about particles. <laughs> there are. There are. Yeah. Well, and
1: it's interesting seeing Carpenter take on something that in a lot of dramatic ways, like, look stylistically thematically and down to the fact this is a splatter movie at heart. It's very classic Carpenter in a lot of respects, Mm -hmm. but it's also him trying to grapple with Mac to your point, that metaphysical territory in a way that's really interesting because it's playing around with, you know, the entire Legion of exorcist knockoffs that followed in the 10, 15 years following And yet it's also trying to do something very new age and spiritualist with it, which was big at the time. This was around the time even that you had a lot of the really serious, you know, science versus evolution doctrinal debates starting to flare up again. So there's a lot of cultural history playing into what is kind of a kill the college students movie at its very center. <laughs> because it still is, but you know, it's also firing on this more curious level.
0: To be fair, some of those college students have incredible mustaches. Let's let's not lie. They you do. Know. There
1: are a lot of 40 year olds in this movie playing yeah. college students. The main students.
0: character basically looks like a California highway patrolman. Um,
2: <laughs> poor guy. Why? Why, why was Tom Atkins not in this movie i have whenever I come back to this movie, I always have to convince myself that it's not Tom Atkins as the lead. I, and I know that he's he's probably way too old to be this grad student coming in, but, <laughs> but there are, I've seen Stranger Things a lot. You know, oh yeah. I and mean, that... in
1: fairness, Jameson Parker looks pretty damn old in his own right. He does, yeah. but
2: that's why I'm like, why didn't we just get Atkinson here? <laughs> and uh, and and I don't know if you guys know, he was from Simon and Simon. Do you guys ever watch that show? When it was I on? No. I didn't. Oh gosh. Well, I guess they were trying to bank off of that. I've seen <laughs> Simon says the Dennis Rodman action vehicle <laughs> oh. is that the same thing? Uh. Oh gosh, what if he was in this movie?
1: Don't bring that on my podcast, Clint. <laughs> the, the <laughs> you keep that on your own. Debut show. of
0: Dane Cook
2: to
1: the screen. Stop, stop it now. <laughs> but to the point of Prince of Darkness, one of the things that I find really, really interesting is just how, you know, this is a really occult movie at a time when that was genuinely alarming to people. Now, it's a very studio occult. We're not exactly getting into, like, the really radical territory of some, like, demon exploitation happening during this era. But at the same time, this is still a movie that... It kind of makes your skin crawl in a way that a lot of Carpenter's work following this would struggle to do, especially when he tried to go straight horror again. There is some... And I don't know if this is... For the sake of disclosure, like, the Catholic upbringing worming its way out of me. But I've always been deeply unsettled by movies that deal in, like, the profaning of the sacred in this way. No, I agree yeah. with you.
0: Well, I mean, one of those things, we, you mentioned The Exorcist earlier, and weirdly enough, this movie reminds me of The Exorcist too. uh Because, like, like we said, the, the initial setup is this priest calling on... His old friend, this like ph- philosophy, this like metaphysical professor to k- bring his college students over to investigate this mysterious, you know, green cylinder full of Satan liquid. Um, and it so you get a lot so of crazy. you get a lot of debates then about like sort of nonsensical debates. Like I tried paying attention to Victor Wong's dialogue in this. I'm like, I I don't I can't make details of it. But there is an attempt to discuss like, hey, how do you quantify the, the devil and like how does that work what if there's a god particle and then an anti-god particle that kind of thing so like that blending of of like it's not explicitly like a catholic demon movie it's catholics working with Like, the people who make the Large Hadron Collider, basically, to, like, fight demons.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and what's interesting is the way in which it kind of tries to, you know, quantify religion in this way. Like, try to reduce, like, God and the Devil to binary terms, Mm -hmm. which, you know, it's a little dorky and a little, like—it's very sci-fi of that time in particular— but it's very interesting in the way that it, you know it tries to modernize the Devil Panic movie in this specific way. I also feel it's one of the only movies that I've seen where they've tried to mix both science and
2: religion. You know, like yeah, they're no, saying, "Oh, one we're doesn't these... win out over the other." Right, right. They're almost saying like it's it's one and the same. Like they were saying at one point that the algorithms, the the like algorithms, the, the, <laughs> well, yeah. uh, the algorithms and the the calculations that this thing is like churning out are predate in the the, the discovery of these kinds of of uh, algorithms. Algorithms and things so it's it's very very weird yeah not there's not a lot of movies where where the devil possesses somebody so they can
0: type like an equation into a computer you know what i mean and even those things like those ominous religious warnings that show up on the thing that aren't explicit uh, scripture but they feel like scripture
2: like your god can't save you uh the the god 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 plutonium plutonium can't save you i thought that was
1: really interesting it reminded me of beneath the planet of the apes The more the two of you lay out the plot, the more it sounds like these are Slayer lyrics made manifest as a movie (laughs) in a lot of respects. But again, there is kind of this terrifying sense of, especially in the case of that plutonium line, reckoning also with the fallout of Cold War panic, which is something else against which this is unfolding. And especially the idea of damnation coming with or without our technology, which is something, you know, we're building entire like sub genres of horror filmmaking around nowadays. But at the time was still kind of this new and novel notion of how is technology going to hurt us? And you saw Cronenberg, especially playing around a lot with this during this same time. Mm-hmm. And this is um, in some ways, you know, there's
0: a little Cronenberg in this. There's a
1: lot more in yeah. the next film we're going to talk about. But there's also yeah. a little in this and as particularly in um I'm getting a little ahead of myself in discussing the technical facets, but the recurrent dream they all start having of the devil in the church, which, as I discovered,
0: it looks like a videotape
1: because it was a VHS played through an analog tube television and taped off of that. So it gives us this kind of hallucinatory second watch quality that is very Videodrome mm-hmm. but is also just like very uniquely terrifying using the tech of that time
0: right and then there's that whole Cronenberg idea of really not being able to trust or control our bodies too oh um, yeah the body horror the body horror is nuts in this like you know even like you know uh what was it uh, uh what, what's her name uh Lisa Right, um, the one who gets all all flayed, the, the, the blonde, yeah, the blonde, yeah. and, um, Wyndham, Wyndham, like his creepy like ant possession thing that like eventually where his body gets eaten out from from inside him. That kind of stuff is really really oh, yeah. affecting.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of genuine grotesquerie going on here. And yeah, there's a lot of mutilation of the body, especially when people start coming back to life no matter the state of them. And then the climactic pregnancy, which is going even further into that fly territory. Mm -hmm. But there's also something uniquely Carpenter, I would argue, about the whole view of nothing will save you, which sounds a little posturing, but it's also, you know... An ethic that really runs through a lot of his work at this time, whether it's this, whether it's um, they live a year later. Mm -hmm. And if you even go back to um, the thing a couple years before, there's this real nihilism that starts to emerge in his work around this time. Well, you know,
2: it's interesting when I was watching the the DVD or Blu-ray recently, there's actually an alternate opening to this uh, movie that suggests that this whole thing could have been a dream. And yeah. it, was air, it aired on, t, I think it was the TV version oh, or something. I think I saw a they, YouTube like, video. They like sped that, up yeah. the opening credits and there's a there's like kind of like a weird the like hazy wash, you minutes. know. Yeah, no, no, yeah, they do, they do. Yeah. And so you can tell it's sped up because uh, uh, my friend Max, when we were watching it, it, it it's like an octave up, <laughs> the, the music is like, it's yeah. not quite right. <laughs> um but yeah so it, th- there's like this whole dreamy quality to it that that maybe it didn't even happen which is i thought was really weird
0: right well and there's another um there's another influence baked into this too that is a little more obscure and i think it's um it's evinced by Carpenter's pseudonym when he wrote this he wrote this as Martin Quatermass. Uh Quatermass being the name of like a, a famous like f- series of uh fictional like of BBC like science fiction stories about this professor that would like right. fight aliens and stuff and uh even like the university is named after the guy who created Quatermass. So it feels very Quatermass where it's like these people in a university setting taking on these otherworldly forces.
1: And then it's this hellish, nihilistic, very Carpenter inversion of that idea then because then you get the idea you can be the smartest people in the world amassed in the same place to bend the knee to the terrors of the unknown. Because I do think that one of the really incredible sequences is at the very end a hand reaching into hell and then another hand reaching back. You know, there's a really overwhelming kind of like – apocalyptic terror to this movie that is kind of overwhelming after a point, especially if again, you're coming from this background, which I mean, look, look, the eighties, very white, very Catholic, at least in America. Mm -hmm. And you have a lot of people coming from this background of, you know, like even as slasher horror was happening, horror, wasn't exactly trying to burrow itself under your skin and make you question the very nature of reality in this way, very often and there's something that feels kind of transgressive for this a universal studios release in 87. Mm-hmm. Well, and especially that
0: feeling of the breakdown of society which i think is best illustrated through like the psychopaths outside of the outside of the church headed by Alice Cooper who's is- Character name, I presume, is Street Schizo. I prefer to think that that's his, the man's name. The best, that is his name. <laughs> to Mr. and Mrs. Schizo, a boy, Street. Um, but yeah, he's great in it. Like he just wanted like a little part, right? And then like
1: Yeah, he came on set because one of his managers was producing Prince of Darkness. Even funner fact, the one guy early on who gets impaled on the bike tire uh-huh. that was a stage gimmick that Cooper was using on his tours right. during yeah. that time. Yeah, the bike that. was his own prop. <laughs> (laughs) And that's such a great moment, too. He's also
2: listening to the the Alex Cooper's single, I think, when that
1: happens. (laughs) Well, and if we're talking about, you know, kind of these apocalyptic things, I want to use that to jump right into In the Mouth of Madness from 1995.
3: You take the manuscript back to the world from me. That's what you do. What I do. You are what I write.
0: Like this town it wasn't here before i wrote it
3: and neither were you no i know what's real i know what i am and nobody pulls my strings
1: in the case of in the mouth of madness Carpenter was actually working within what he himself has dubbed his Apocalypse trilogy, which starts with The Thing, moves on through Prince of Darkness, and ends with In the Mouth of Madness, which... I would ar- I will argue very seriously is the last great Carpenter movie.
2: Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. At least
1: the last very notable Carpenter movie in that it is a 1994 studio attempting to do Lovecraft, which filmmakers have been trying to get off the ground for years. I know Guillermo del Toro somewhere is still trying to do At the Mountains of Madness as a direct adaptation. Uh-huh. But Lovecraftian horror, if we've danced around a, li- a little bit with Prince of Darkness, here we're directly directly invoking it and before we move on i kind of want to parse out a little bit what we see that as being because i've noticed that a lot of people connect to the terrors of lovecraft in very particular ways for instance for me it's very much the whole idea of something worming its way into your brain to such a point where it changes your fundamental ability to comprehend what's happening around you which this film plays with a lot as it goes on
0: yeah, there is that surreal sense in Lovecraft stuff of the world not quite being right. And especially the forces that you're up against being so unfathomable to the human mind that that in and of itself, that the brain attempting to understand these forces, these like deep one kind of Cthulhu-ish stuff, that that is what breaks you to a certain extent. And I think like to a certain, to you know, to a certain level, I think In the Mouth of madness might be the most... Successful Lovecraft remake or Lovecraft adaptation. Like I've heard great things about. Like there was a micro-budget movie that's just called Cthulhu that like Hmm. gets that mood right a little bit. But in terms of like this kind of studio fare. Um, it does feel like a precursor to things like Silent Hill and that kind of stuff. To to that to the extent where like yeah, I, I think this more or less pretty well works.
2: Yeah, you're broken as soon as you start this movie because you're ne- you're never in a semblance of normalcy. It starts and he's already at the asylum. So even when he's telling the story, you you don't know what reality is through mm-hmm. the entire thing. So yeah, I, I think that it definitely works in this movie, and it's I absolutely feel like it's his best, uh, his last best movie. <laughs>
0: Uh, I, I will brook no sass about Escape from LA, sir.
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's a good time, but uh, that's a different uh, that's a different. Podcast. Russell surfs, okay? That was last week's episode. <laughs> yeah, we're in the here and the now, oh, man. Or maybe we are. I don't really know because know. we might be nowhere in particular at all. We might be in an endless convulsing ver- yeah. universe of tentacles. For we're, all we know, <laughs>
0: we're all just sitting in an empty movie theater, giggling our asses off, eating popcorn.
1: So I want to talk about the last half hour of In the Mouth of Man. Because this has to be one of my favorite Sam Neill performances Oh yeah! in that yeah. the film absolutely gets him to go for broke in a movie that gets stranger and stranger by the second. I saw this way back in the early period of high school. I had not seen it in a very long time, and I forgot how singularly cool the... Opening of the rift into the next presumably Cthulhu dimension with the fringe of book pages really is <laughs> yeah it's yeah, a it's cool. an extremely blunt force way to illustrate Lovecraftian horror granted. But we've talked ad nauseum on the past episodes of Filmography already about how Carpenter is not a subtle filmmaker. (laughs) And on that basis, he does some really incredible things here.
0: Yeah. And what a great choice for a lead in Sam Neill, who I think is one of those great character actors who can manage to be both a lead and a crazy balls to the wall character actor in the same role. Especially here. Like, I really feel like. Whenever he eventually did Event Horizon a few years later, he was absolutely calling back to his character here, like the, the depths of insanity that he would end up going to.
2: I don't think this movie would have worked as well without an actor of his caliber. I mean, right out the gate, there's that line in the Imagine beginning. Imagine Mustache Guy in this one. Yeah. Oh, God, no, it would yeah. not have worked. There's that line in the beginning where he yells at the, one of the orderlies, like, sorry about the balls, and, like, it could come off so dumb, but the rest of the movie just, I mean, he just sells. He
1: sells it all the way through. Well, then I would argue to an extent this film is very much trading on the fact that this is Sam Neill immediately post-Jurassic Park is now a symbol the nation over of like rationality and composed cool, yes. even <laughs> under pressure. And I think Carpenter is very specifically trading on that in introducing him as a madman. Right. Yeah, well, it's, his
0: character is like, if, if Dr. Grant was solely defined by that scene where he threatens to gut a child with a raptor claw,
2: yeah, I mean he's such a shit in the beginning of this movie yeah <laughs> he is he's this kind of the slime ball, but he gets the job done, so you you're you're not you're not really on his side except for the fact that you're on the side of of sanity, exactly. Yeah. He
1: becomes this proxy for everything familiar about you know functional reality, however we might define it. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of really cool manipulations. I mean, just in the way we'll talk about this more in the second half with how people disappear in scenes. Sometimes he'll Mm. turn his head and things are gone. You know, there's a lot of fun trickery with it, but there's also this mounting sense of dread that I think in part comes from, you know, watching somebody as familiarly composed as Sam Neill unravel. And especially in the way that the film treats that unraveling as kind of just this steamroller that is continuously moving towards you,
0: right? And um, I think it, it's worth pointing out that the that Lovecraft is not the only author that is being evoked in *In the Mouth of Madness*. Um, where would you say this ranks in terms of Garth Marenghi's *Dark Place* episodes?
3: Because uh, <laughs> uh,
0: there's speaking of cross-pollination, you know, I feel like you know *Losers Club* would probably have a field day with uh, with this, with uh, the very Stephen King-like author. Sutter Kane, real oh, subtle yeah. guys, um, including like the the all the all of book covers that have this the Stephen King font and everything.
1: Yeah, and even better, the one throwaway lane about he sells even <laughs> better than Stephen King. Yeah, that's sure. how you know the no stakes way. are high. Yeah, he outsells
2: them all. And uh, yeah, yeah. And there's also as much as there there's a nod to Stephen King there. I feel like there's a lot more Clyde Barker in this. In terms yeah. of the like the well the kind of body hor- horror the sexuality of it yeah uh, well I mean and and I guess we're leaning on Cronenberg too there but yeah um, or and I think I really just am being. I'm really just recalling they're kind
0: of a fraternity at this point in the eighties,
2: the, the monsters at the end, that entire sequence where all the monsters are coming out and they're running down the hallway and it's all practical effects. And it took like, I think like 30 people or something to man that <laughs> mass, uh, chase scene mm. reminds me a lot of Hellraiser of, uh, when, uh, she opens the, the, the wall and there's the monster there and, and she's got to you know, run all the way down the hall and this thing chases her all the way down. And, mm-hmm. um, but yeah there there's a lot of there's a lot of nods to King there in terms of I, I think it would have been really funny though to have uh King uh, in this film. I don't know who he would have played uh, <laughs> Okay, Maybe some maybe someone at the hotel, you know. Yeah, uh,
1: Stephen yeah. King is John Trent. Go big or go home. Exactly. Oh, That's
0: his his screen debut as a lead. Um no, I I really like I really like that um metatextual nature to it because it's also comment it's it's also allowing us to engage with it as people who are individually fans of Stephen King and seeing the way it toys with Stephen King fandom and its own publishing nature and yeah.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with you there where I like the idea of where I think there's the line about um, when does when does fiction become religion and vice versa. Like uh, so many people love, or he says at one point, Kane says, you know, more people are fans of my books than the, or have read my books more than the Bible or something like that. He's and, written and I more think, books than he's read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think that with Stephen King, it's the same thing. You have these these fans that just absolutely worship him and and horror and war. Where where does the reality end and 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 that begin? You know, I mean, if you believe in something that much and you will it into existence, is the whole the whole thing here? And I wonder. Uh... Now I'm getting like for real about it but I think but this kind of goes back to Prince of Darkness where you're you were saying your Catholic upbringing kind of informed your why that's so haunting and scary for you and I grew up a Methodist but I still felt like the exorcist really terrified me as a child because I felt like that was something that maybe 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 in the back of my mind felt like it could maybe happen and as much as I don't think the the events in the Mouth of Madness could happen <laughs> I like to believe that um That if you believe in something enough that you could that you could essentially possibly will something into uh, some kind of existence. And so that's a little terrifying.
1: Well, and I think part of the Lovecraftian terror too, especially like the terror of the literary as you're getting at here Mm -hmm. is that idea that it can worm your way into your present everyday conscious. And, you know, that's why we get so scared when we hear about, you know. Mark David Chapman reading Catcher in the Rye and deciding it was telling him he needed to kill John Lennon. Like, we know that those things do in fact happen to people in the modern world. Mm -hmm. And there is a primordial terror that emerges out of that reality. And it's very interesting to see Carpenter then play with that theme because Carpenter makes Halloween in 1978. It wasn't the first slasher movie, but it had a substantial hand in mainstreaming them as a genre and as a staple of the 80s especially. And he watched a genre that he invented with artfulness and nuance that we're still doing whole Consequence Podcast Network series about today. (laughs) And he watched as that was turned into, you know, sleaze, often actual pornography, and watching that kind of be whittled down. So then on an extra, extra textual level, there's this interesting comment in that final scene A man laughing until he's driven to sobs of terror by the realization that whatever was movie, whatever was fiction, whatever is true, doesn't matter anymore.
0: Right. And to add another layer of that, there's that um, that element of the publicity stunt at the center of the entire thing where it's revealed that the the idea that Sutter Kane was brutally murdered in this town was it started. The whole thing started out as just like a fake stunt until it becomes all too real, and the way the way that you know manifests itself throughout the film is really really fascinating and seeing seeing the ways in which you know these people have have more or less walked into this situation at least like the editor has,
2: yeah, but you can't it's like you can't even trust that because charlton Heston at the end of the film is saying. Well, I didn't send uh, Let my people the, the go. woman? Oh, I did <laughs> Yeah. Well, he does say that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he but he says that he didn't he didn't send that woman with him. He doesn't even remember. Uh, yeah. What was her name? Uh, Regine from Fright Night Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's like you don't. You still are just trying to grapple with your sense of when when did he lose it? When when did he read the book? And if right. he's not a fan of Sutter Kane. How did how did he read it, and what's true and what's not true? You know,
0: right, right, and but even even entertaining that idea evinces the, that same kind of cynicism about the way horror has been commodified and like turned into this product to be sold by all these different publishing agencies, which is probably a big part of why he is increasingly independent as as a filmmaker from mm-hmm. here on.
2: I don't know if that's a good thing, though. Uh, well,
0: I guess we'll <laughs> find out.
1: Well, and I think around this time, again, you're really seeing Carpenter kind of struggle with his identity. Within a few years of this, he would go on to say that filmmaking, by and large, wasn't fun for him anymore. And this was right around the time that, you know, studios were starting to take more and more producerly authorial control over movies after the wildness of the decades prior within that system. But studio movies could still get pretty weird and wild during this time. And if we're gonna talk about Carpenter getting weird, that's as good a time as any to talk about 1998's vampires. <laughs> with a with a with a dollar sign? No, <laughs> the novel had the dollar sign in the title. This is just John Carpenter's vampires.
2: No,
3: really. What do you guys do?
1: I'm not kidding. We kill vampires. Hey Catelyn, mm-hmm. tell the lady what we do for a living. Kill vampires. Hunt them down.
3: Get the shit out of them. <laughs> right how you feel baby nobody believes in vampires see the thing is we know vampires are stalking the earth we also know there's a god too we just don't understand him
1: starring James Woods in his best distressed wranglers <laughs> tight black snake pliskin shirt and cool guy sunglasses I thought you were going to say best role <laughs> this is I really thought you were going his there. best
0: pre-Twitter madman role
1: Gene Siskel once called for an Oscar nomination for James Woods for this role and that's not something dumb I'm making up as a bit that's a real thing you can look up
0: God bless that man oh, yeah. Um, yeah this really feels like vampires feels like uh John Carpenter doing Robert Rodriguez a little bit.
1: In a lot of ways, yeah. And I mean putting it. It feels this like a out, From Till Dawn sequel. Yeah, and two years yeah. later it doesn't exactly assuage that comparison.
0: <laughs> Vampires Los Muertos starring Bon Jovi. It it feels a lot like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it feels like. <laughs> right.
1: No, um, this is the beginning of an era of Carpenter where you know he's much more we'll say freewheeling in his approach to filmmaking. Yeah.
0: He traded in his Casio for a, for an electric guitar and just fell in love with that thing.
1: Yeah. He is, he's big on riffs as we've talked about in past episodes, but this movie is also by his own admission, and attempts to invoke the Howard Hawks classics of yore, things like Red River he specifically cited in interviews about this film. (laughs) And there are definitely times throughout his career where you can see his interest in Westerns. We talked about this last week with Assault on Precinct 13 and with the Escape movies. Mm. Here he tries to do... Ghost of Mars definitely tries to do it. Ghost of Mars definitely tries to do it. This is almost Carpenter doing Near Dark to an end. I found myself thinking about Catherine Bigelow's movie a lot during this it's plain, that you'd rather be watching it <laughs> yeah. Mo- yeah mostly that i would like to watch near dark again yeah. um take me back to bill Paxson and filmmaking <laughs> oh, competence yes. mm-hmm. so you know there's a lot of rolling our eyes and sighing even audibly <laughs> and i'm gonna kind of open the floor so what about vampires does not work for the two of you uh Whoa. the entire film
2: no uh it it doesn't work because you have the protagonist and all of his uh, buddies, just absolutely the dregs of society, and y- there's no good guy here. Uh, it, even you think they're the good guy, and then when they go to the church, there's supposed to be this relationship between him and the, and the cardinal, but they seem really jaded too, mm-hmm. and. Uh, what are the vampires doing except for like minding their own at some motel site? You know what I mean? Like they're not, you never see them like out and about like destroying a thing you just see James Woods and his cronies coming in and disturbing their sleep. Yeah.
0: It's, I think my, my, sentiments fall along similar lines and that there's just kind of this moral ugliness to it that yeah. doesn't feel subversive or anything. It, you're just watching people like slap women for no reason.
2: And, and you have, so you, you have your, your, your main characters are just kind of like the, these, these like outcasts the of society. That, it feels that, like a sons of anarchy yeah. episode. Yeah. Oh no, it Not, really no, does just because and, but, Bobby's in it. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bobby. Uh, Bobby. But then you have like, you know, Cheryl, Cheryl is like, You know, you have all these, like, women who are, you know, working... Sex... Yeah, 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 well, it's like,
0: hey, because the whole beginning of the movie is, hey, we've rounded up these vampires. Let's celebrate by hiring a bunch of prostitutes and having a big rager in this motel. Like, so right (laughs) off the bat. And and also, what a way to introduce all your people and then just murder most of them.
1: There is also, like, a very dated notion of what the cool protagonist of an action movie is at work in Vampires. And, you know, we ter- we talked about Turn of the Millennium posturing a couple weeks ago with Ghost of Mars. We're going to touch on it here again because I can't remember the last time, and I'm glad that I can't remember this, but the last time that I saw the protagonist in an action movie be a terrible homophobe to vampires yeah. for the purpose of <laughs> endearing himself to an audience. He's
0: just so cool with that leather jacket and those sunglasses, Tom. Like, who, who looked at James Woods and like, hey, here's our badass. Macho guy, you
2: know it's really strange because I feel like James Woods, especially like in, in Videodrome or, or films like that. Like, I, I really liked him as that kind of character, or at least as the as the protagonist. yeah, but this just doesn't work, and he's trying. This
0: movie he's has really John Woo but... leaping through across a room, firing dual handguns.
1: That, yeah, there's this movie. <laughs> there's a lot of stylistic trickery at work here to ultimately cover the fa- for the fact that this is. Really, the first of the latter-day Carpenter movies to look like it was shot on a number of sets in total that I can count on one hand. Yeah, and that feel very much exudes off the screen a lot of the time. There's there's something very cheap seeming about vampires. There again, the rager in the party not only goes way too long and has some hysterical editorial choices <laughs> we'll talk about in the second half. Oh, yeah but is also basically a step removed from Skinamax. There's just something very seedy about a lot of vampires. Down to the presence of a lesser Baldwin, it feels very second rate.
0: (laughs) It's very sci-fi channel original movie, right down to the casting of not just one of the lesser Baldwins, like you said, but Tim Guinea, who is a Canadian character actor that, because I have have a broken brain facility for this, for Canadian (laughs) sci-fi actors, I've seen a lot in various Stargate, and what have you. So uh, like, just his mere presence uh, and, again, the cheapness of the whole thing makes it feel very direct to video. Uh,
2: Thomas Ian Griffith, (laughs) as the lead vampire here, is Valak. uh, uh, The most hot topic sort of vampire. (laughs) Predating the nuns, Valak, uh, is just... Under, uh, personally, I feel like he's incredibly underused because I love him in Karate Kid 3. <laughs> he is, he is uh, insane. It makes it, That movie made me want to go watch all of his movies.
1: So one of the other things that really dates vampires, other than the soundtrack, which sounds like Carpenter going, yeah, I heard uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan in the car on the way here, is also just... This overwhelming piles of gore to no real effects sensibility, which was really starting to hit a point of oversaturation right around this time in American film Mm -hmm. where, you know, you had not just Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino, but the deluge of people who wanted to be one or both of them at the same time doing these splatter movies where, you know, you fire arrows and people explode. And especially in the way that they violently catch fire in the sun, there's. Now that you pointed it out, there's a lot of debt from from Dust just Till Dawn, Dawn to this yeah. movie.
2: But that also reminds me heavily of Near Dark because that's the main way in which a lot of them go out is is by sunlight. Mm-hmm.
0: But also, again, like it feels sort of similarly cheap to From Dust Till Dawn, and also infused again not just with that '90s macho cool that, weirdly enough, people like Tarantino and Rodriguez helped popularize. There are those like gimmicky kind of amazon ebook novel level like inventive vampire murder weapon things like there is like it feels like the entire team is built around this gimmick of we're
2: gonna harpoon vampires and drag them out into the sunlight which becomes even (laughs) this is a scene in the movie that takes like it's like 30 minutes long of them just trying to get a couple vampires out of this motel towards the end. Because even and in the story, it, it takes them a, so a whole exhausting. day. so yeah. exhausting. Yeah, it takes them a whole day. They lose the sunlight, and they're just trying desperately. I'm like, isn't there a better way to get – once you harpoon these –
1: can't you just drive How a stake through its the heart? house? No, man. Road-hauling vampires, that's their tried-and-true right? method. There God. is not a more efficient way of going about this. you got to
2: think, these vampires – they're not stronger than this this truck that's pulling them out. you know they can't just yeah. yank this thing up apart they're vampires they're immortal they're they're strong they're throwing people across the room you know like right I just don't get it
0: well I mean they have this whole like after that whole first act then the movie begins where suddenly it's like a ticking clock scenario <laughs> with uh, with Cheryl Lee from Twin Peaks
2: who are um, extremely invested in like we no one here wanted her to become a vampire
0: right uh who
1: <laughs> I, I, I was I I'm was, sorry a goon excuse me oh yes. yeah oh, that's right whoa, yeah whoa, whoa, we whoa, we have to define this that there are masters which is pretty and rice and then there are goons which is an objectively hilarious thing to call a vampire (laughs) when it comes out of james woods's mouth as he's like snarling out of one corner of it even funnier and
0: and when it the way he sounds it kind of feels racist like he says just hearing james Woods say the word goon makes me feel like he's being racist there. It feels like even it. when he's not, he just feels like
2: But it, it feels like it is. And and all like you were saying earlier down with all the the homophobia in this. I mean, it yeah. it was it was very hard. Well, first of all, it's hard to watch period, but a lot of that stuff, especially I mean, even with the priest and and the end, the last few lines of the movie is just so bizarre. I'm like, "You really thought this was going to go over well?" And uh, uh you know, there was a, a sequel planned for this that they ended up turning into a hockey movie called Goon.
0: Oh, that's right. <laughs> and then the, the its own sequel, Goon Last of the Enforcers. <laughs> uh, Enforcers being vampire yeah, hunters, it, of know, course. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. No, uh, you know what other movie this reminded me of? Van fucking Helsing.
1: It really does because it is. so David
0: Wenham is definitely Tim Guiney's character. Yeah. Well, and also oh,
1: yeah. it is so thoroughly mired down in exposition about like the rules of the vampires God. in this movie that it frequently breaks because it's not entirely that concerned with them. Yeah. But it passes a lot of screen time establishing that over and over for no real effect.
0: And use really useless twists like the cardinal being in on it and whatever. But again, like the whole point, uh, the whole thrust <laughs> of the movie, like you know James. Wood- Woods is ostensibly the main character, but it feels like the journey is supposed to be that priest's um, yeah. turning into a hardcore badass like James Woods, and like really don't don't want to be like James. They Woods. They spend
2: so much time with Daniel Baldwin's character. Uh, I, I felt not- like he I felt like he became kind of the main character. We we're supposed to care about his journey and and how he falls in love with this 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 prostitute. <laughs> it's yeah.
0: so Daniel Baldwin looks like if like Alec Baldwin washed up on a beach after a couple, three days. You mean like dead? Dead, yes. <laughs> after the sea has taken him and we discover him once more.
2: But he's roaming but then around But they threw now... him in some
0: Levi's and a leather vest and he's good to go.
2: And if we're, if we're about to move on, I got to at least mention that that last sequence where James Woods tells him he's going to give him a, a few a few days, but when he finds him, he's going to kill him. <laughs> I, I really appreciated when
0: uh, when they paid homage to that scene in Fast Five-
2: You know what? Uh, I'm not a I'm not a fast head uh, like you and my Uh, brother and some other people I know. uh, (laughs) So unfortunately, that's lost on me.
1: Uh, So I want to make a couple of points about vampires at this time. One is that James Woods at one point before firing a crossbow at a vampire says the words open wide, baby. Which is basically the – now, first of all, he says it with all the sex appeal that I myself just mustered right then and there. (laughs) And second is probably this entire movie in microcosm, as best I can put it. Yeah. My second point is that I have a question for the two of you. Mm -hmm. What would happen if you sent off the star of vampires to become a lumberjack? He'd become a James Woodsman. God damn
2: it. God. I I – Really racking my brain I don't know here if thinking, I that wait, is one. this a question or... Uh... <laughs> Am I supposed to have an answer here? (laughs) There is no answer. There is no answer. I'm going to be doing the second
1: half of this show myself in other news after both of my (laughs) co-hosts leave the studio. Just so you know, Dom teed us up for that earlier, and um, it uh, definitely delivered. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I definitely knocked that one out of the park like James Woods in Vampires before me (laughs) when he butchers (laughs) all of his friends at the beginning of the movie. He has to do it alone, y'all. Is this the movie that wastes
0: Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa the most? Because I didn't even recognize that he was in it until like I saw the credits.
1: Yeah, apparently he actually like spoke to Carpenter about his use in that movie. So, yeah. you know, I think you're on to something Probably. there. But, you know, we're talking latter-era Carpenter. We're talking, you know, like his last... We're talking his last handful of movies here. And... That seems as good a way as I need to jump into his very last movie as of this podcast publication 2010's The Ward. Do we
2: have to? I don't think there's a good way to jump into that at all.
1: Back up.
3: Back up. Back up. You can't do this.
2: Watch me. You're only hurting yourself. What are you going to do, Kristen? Where are you going to go?
3: Away from here. Come on, drop the knife.
1: Yeah, there's there might not be a great way into this because we've talked in the past few weeks about a handful of films that really feel outside of the purview of Carpenter's body of work, even as, you know, it's something like Dark Star or Starman, something we find really compelling but also very different. Mm-hmm. The Ward feels out of a piece with Carpenter's filmography for very different reasons. Namely that it is like the most mall horror movie of 2002, 2003 released at a time when those movies weren't even being made by cheap studios anymore.
0: Right. Wasn't paranormal activity already a thing by then? Yeah. So like that was what the next phase in horror was. We had already done torture porn and moved on to uh, found footage by the time this trotted along. And yeah, for, for a director who usually has such a, a distinctive vision and has its own sort of, even within his various modes a very distinct visual style this feels the most director for hire of his works. Oh, absolutely. Which is weird because he comes back after 10 years to do this. This this is a script that came, that made him crawl back. You know? Was it
2: a dare? W- why, why did he do this? I mean, was he
1: friends with the writers? Do, does anybody know? He wanted to come back and, you know, far be it for me to assume intentions. It's not something I like to do on this show too much, but it is baffling because this feels not just so separate from most of his career, because, you know, we've talked, especially when we were discussing somebody's watching me last week. We've talked about Carpenter's sly feminist streak through a fair deal of his filmmaking, but it feels like it started to wear off a little in the '90s with the the grossness of vampires, and then subsequently Ghosts of Mars a few years later. Mm-hmm. And it really kind of hits a peak here because this is very much a girls getting tortured kind of horror movie and one with a terrible final twist that manages to ape the John Cusack vehicle identity, which is never (laughs) a sentence I thought I'd have to say, and basically steps on the entire film that you've just watched in the way the worst endings tend to. I have another question for you
2: guys. If... She really is just one person. Why is are they the only people in this facility? <laughs> <laughs> What what are we doing? in This giant facility. There's no other patients, but just one it's dedicated patient. To her. There's multiple orderlies handling her. Because even with all the
0: personalities, it's pretty sparse in this giant. Like that's something that even like my wife was talking about whenever we were watching it last night. It's like, are they the only people yeah, here? They dedicated
2: one wing to one girl, and it's also a a period movie that and and, and it doesn't
0: do anything with the period part. too. It is for like the fact that I guess we did lobotomies more back then.
2: Oh gosh, I mean, down to just the bare bare
1: minimum to, to yeah. say oh well it's it takes place in another period
0: very <laughs> sucker punch huh. um, so
1: yeah space. I'm actually glad you brought that up even though that's the only time I'll say that about Zack Snyder's sucker punch but <laughs> there is a definite similarity with the idea that it seems to be driving at something that the movie itself never really bothers to reach you know Yeah.
0: well because it, it, it grasps at this idea of the ways in which society oppresses women, especially young women too, um, in this sanitarium system, in this sub- subtextual way about talking about how women are not believed and, and not, you know, given the, the full credit of their own sanity. Right. But, yeah, it completely drops the ball by just like pushing the envelope and be like, oh, but we'll still torture them anyway. Even well, but but it drops the
2: ball in the sense that She is crazy. (laughs) She is crazy. She she, she, she gets fresh. She has multiple personalities. Well, also, the logistics of the
0: twist (laughs) require the rest of the movie before that to be so vague to fit the twist. That we don't really get anything about the characters. Yeah,
1: there's there's no establishment of anybody. It very much feels like the worst horror movies do, especially the worst slashers, where you feel like you're just sitting on a slow roller coaster, waiting to get to the next kill, so the movie can finally move on. Oh, yeah.
0: Right. I can't decide whether the min- whether the movie's eighty eight minute runtime is like a, a brisk relief or the fact that they just ran out of movies so early.
2: It feels so long. If, yeah. e- even so. And, and let me ask you this too. Why? What is, the, what is she trying to get away from? They're not like hurting her. I mean, except for the fact that she thinks that there's someone killing these girls. But right at the beginning, why is she trying to... Is Why are they all trying to escape this facility when no one... Jared Harris is a seemingly nice guy. They don't really hurt <laughs> He's not the patients. Guy. It's really weird. It's just... It's so confusing, this whole
0: movie. It keeps trying to manufacture stakes because it knows there are none actually there. Yeah, um, And that makes everything feel very mechanical.
1: And there are, you know, it's very strange too to see Carpenter working in a mode where, you know, all of the attempts at mood and especially the scares are the most out-of-the-box jump scares from, you know, the whole, like, Japanese and Korean horror adaptation boom of the early aughts. You know, this is the... Um, somebody goes into a confined space and then a mangled looking head pops up behind it. Yeah. Drowned girls for terror. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, um, yeah. Shriek shrieking orchestral sounds to convey that you are supposed to be spooked now by the spooky movie. Right.
2: Oh, can't wait to talk about the soundtrack. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, well, we'll come back to that in the second half. But the other thing that's really strange about The word is, again, I want to go back to your point, Clint, how director for hire it feels. Because outside of Memoirs of an Invisible Man, which we'll talk about next week, there's never been anything less Carpenter-seeming that I've seen of his.
0: And I think part of that is how slick it looks. Like, it feels slick in a very basic way, whereas, you know, everything else had this shot on film, gritty texture to it, like, even Ghosts of Mars has this, has that, like, tendency towards, like, dissolves and, like, weird little, like, you know, Carpenter flourishes. Here it feels like one of the, it feels like one of those J-horror movies that, like, the same Japanese director came over to the States to remake their own movie. Um, and, it, yeah, there's, like, little bits like the POV shots and stuff that feel a little carpentry, but even that sheen of the digital filmmaking and the color correction makes it feel wrong in a
1: weird way. Oh, yeah. A lot of the – um especially some of those trembling screen hallucinatory druggie edits mm-hmm. are out of a much different era of digital filmmaking that is just not as unsettling as a lot of what we've talked about in the previous weeks. Right. I mean, it, again, it's – you know, this is – I hate using the phrasing for it but it's another drowned girl tragedy in so many words.
0: Yeah, I mean it's true.
1: And I mean I don't it's just a weird choice to see him put this movie together when he did more than anything.
0: Yeah, cuz again like he had taken a decade hiatus and it feels so bizarre that it like you'd think he would come back for something that is so unique and maybe he just right. hadn't watched a lot of horror movies in the last few years and thought this was
2: new I don't know I don't know it's like yeah it's like everybody on set was instructed to not tell him that this was an identity <laughs> <laughs> right. because it's not it's not breaking new new ground and this uh, movie doesn't
0: even have the novelty of having Ray Liotta in it
2: yeah, exactly, but yeah, it's not breaking any new ground. I mean, we've seen this story before, and you know, I, I feel like unfortunately, Unseen asylums are not scary anymore. They're just not. It's just it's just been done to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's like faint hints of Carpenter stuff in this. I think it's like the, the shower sequence when you see you know the ghost. Uh, you know, yeah, the, like that part's sa- a little, but a little but again, spooky. there's just weird stuff. It's like okay, if if this is all supposed to be one person, there are scenes where two girls are talking off. Away from her, having a conversation separate, separate from her. Mm-hmm. Uh, ha- why is that happening? If, you know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Okay, Wait.
1: you didn't pay for the movie to pull threads, Mac. You just paid <laughs> to true. watch a movie. Well, I didn't pay for this movie at all. <laughs> I just, <laughs> paid
0: to get, I paid to get spooked by, uh, by a little scarred girl. To have every twenty minutes.
1: You no, know, this is this is very much, you know, a movie kind of existing at an absence. And I don't want to sit here and rag on it any further because any Carpenter fan you ask about this, like even the most diehard completists that I've discussed this project with have all been like, yeah, that uh and last one's a little rough. Uh-huh. And again, you know, yeah. there's there's better iterations of this movie out there. The difference is most of Carpenter's latter day work was him ripping off some of his best work. Whereas this is just him aping a genre that was long since bypassed.
0: Right. And it's so tough to talk about this one because I mean, in terms of filmmaking substance, in terms of plot, there's so little there, there, it just feels so like you said, there's an absence. There's a substance list to this. And I know that there are people like who have, have like weird kind of oppositional reading defenses of this. Like um, Scout Tafoya has an episode of his video essay series, the unloved on it. That's like strangely very compelling. Um, And he does see a lot more elements of Carpenter's cinematography in that, than I think we do. But uh, yeah, it still exists as a strange anomaly, the strange coda to this guy's career.
1: And it, it makes us ask a question that no one should really have to ask would Ghosts of Mars have been a better farewell movie?
0: Uh, for me, yes. Because <laughs> I just love that weird Marilyn Manson in space western thing.
2: It's still, I, I hate Ghosts of Mars, but it's still, at least it's still, it felt like John Carpenter failing at making the the transition to, to you know, digital. It just felt like, you know, like in terms of all the, the effects and the, the crossfades and, Oh, that's that's my favorite thing in vampires. All the fade, the fade <laughs> into the next. City. Yeah. You know, especially when he's picking up the bodies. But yeah, it's. Yeah. I think it probably would have been a better, a better last film. I mean, it still yeah. feels like Carpenter. That's you was
0: know? to say, like at least Ghost of Mars feels like a bad John Carpenter yes. movie. This doesn't feel like a John Carpenter
2: movie. It just feels like a bad movie.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Well, and we can kind of get into the why of that as we move into the second half of our discussion and start talking about the technical facets. So to kind of jump right into our discussion of sight then, cinematography and editing... You know, if we were talking the ward just a second ago, let's stay on the ward for just a moment longer because (laughs) one of the things that, you know, we've already alluded to this repeatedly, but there is a kind of cleanliness and I would argue sterility of the image in the ward that, again, is I think one of the reasons we're talking about this being so much an outlier of his body of work.
0: Absolutely. You know, with, uh, with the other films that we'll get into in a second, like I said, there's a graininess to it. There's this texture and everything else for, for a movie that takes place in what is supposed to be kind of like a one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of grimy sixties, um, in the sanitarium. And again, like it feels like a club med almost. It feels very clean, very, it's very cool, A very cool lighting structure. Um, and not, not like in an awesome way just like a lot of blues a lot of grays it's very monochromatic
2: it's not lived in at all no, it's, which, it, we feel like we just stepped into uh, on a set.
0: Yeah, well, think about the opening credit sequence, which like is ostensibly supposed to be cool, where it's like all these like different images with the the shattering glass, which feels like I'm just watching the Unbreakable trailer for like all over again. <laughs> yeah, um, but like it's very clean CGI glass and stuff. It feels like a, a microcosm of the whole film, where it's just like this, it's the illusion of this mess, but it's so cleanly presented that it doesn't really have an effect on you.
2: Well, it's strange because I think the cinematographer did, you know, Wayne Days, that David Wayne web series, and some Funnier Die stuff. So there you go. We've stepped away from. So, how did he fall, fall
0: from so far 20. from that to this? <laughs>
2: Well, I,
1: I there's no. Know. That's a good point. There's no Dean Cundey. There's no Gary B. Kibb. There. This is one of Carpenter's only films where he's not working with familiar faces from the top to the bottom of the board, and yeah. it shows. There's
0: not even recurring actors. I mean, there are there there are a few actors in this.
2: Although, if he does if he does continue to make films, Carpenter, and we know you're listening to this, if you make another movie, <laughs> I'd like to see Jared Harris show up again. I think you yeah, you yeah. can pull something
1: uh, brilliant out of that. He man. has a very Donald. Pleasant's presence in this movie that was hard to say I love it anyway no but he does he has that very kind of assured actorly presence that always made a lot of Carpenter stuff pop even when he was making elevated B movies or whatever you might want to call them
0: so you're calling for the Dr. Stringer cinematic universe I'm, I'm oh, not yeah. oh, sure I am now. I'm stepping that far. <laughs> okay, fair. But no, it's interesting because like he
2: called his, his name from the film.
3: <laughs> I
0: have the Wikipedia page. Oh, like you said, the uh, the guy who wh- whoever did the Wikipedia page for all the characters' motivations did yeoman's work. Because Jared Harris as Doctor Stringer, he seems hopeful in curing Kristen, though his real intentions seem mysterious the whole time.
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah. Somebody really lent a tone of mystery to that page. My hope is it's John Carpenter, but again, having <laughs> conversed oh, with him, I don't think he'd have the time for the Wikipedia page uh, yeah, on it
0: or the attention span, really,
1: but if the ward is definitely kind of asynchronously clean photography, um then I want to jump back to the beginning with Prince of Darkness, which is much more carpenter and in the way we think a carpenter,
3: yeah,
1: down to the way that actors are shot, particularly actors who are having something bad happen to their bodies. Because I think one of the things that he often manages photographically, especially during his 1980s, is this sense of, you know, going beyond body horror, but the terror of the moments leading up to it. The fear on the characters faces as something revolting is about to happen. That's something that I think is very distinctly Carpenter a lot of the time. And I think it really works in this film. agreed. And especially with a lot
0: with Prince of Darkness and a lot of his other greater works, I just love the trust he has in his practical effects. Um, oh, yeah. just even the even the moments when you're showcasing the crazier stuff, the more inventive spooks and scares, like all the 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 fake arms falling off of a body or uh, or green satanic fluid flowing into the eyes and mouth of a character that's like, you know, looking back uh rewatching this in like an HD version is very clearly like just some crappy doll but the but the movement of it and the aesthetic of it really really sells
1: well and to go back to discussions from past weeks of the show We've also talked very much about, like, the tactile quality of Carpenter, and this is one of the last films where you really see that. I mean, I like you bringing up the the green goo, especially as it's being fired at people using reverse photography, because it's so grotesque, and it feels squicky in that physical way that only practical effects can. And
0: there's a homespun quality to it that, strangely enough, adds to that visceral feeling, like, you know that this is physically happening— to the actor, and that is what makes it feel more immediate.
2: It's even more disturbing when the use, even just the use of the of the VHS tape, like we were talking about earlier, with the dream sequence, and that having and that coming from the future apparently. So the year one nine nine nine. Yes, and having that be two years
0: after the fake future of Predator Two. But
2: <laughs> I like that. I, 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 having that be the thing that's being sent back, and it's that like old school, I guess, or or jarringly low tech kind of frightens you for what's coming in the future, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, there's
0: an analog nature to a lot of Carpenter's stuff that's really appealing.
1: Well, and especially during this time, it started being almost kind of punk and defiantly analog, which you especially see with, again, They Live the Year After, but you even see that here where he's trying to repel you with these ancient stories through making them kind of I like the phrase icky and I know how goofy it sounds, but I think we'd all agree. Prince of darkness is a pretty icky movie in the, and again, it goes back to that physicality of the effects and the kind of this way that Carpenter was able to externalize that a lot of the time you get more of that within the mouth of madness, but it's far more surrealist in that case. And you can tell that this is really arguably the last time that Carpenter is messing around with some really interesting transgressive visuals.
2: Yeah, these demons are are, are vomiting or wa- streams of water into other people's mouths. Uh, I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's intense. <laughs> yeah, like yeah,
0: is that happening in Mouth of Madness too, or is it just Prince of Darkness? Oh and,
2: uh, no, just of Darkness. no, just Prince of Darkness. But right, right. but I feel like Prince of Darkness it goes goes above and beyond with with the the body horror and this. Oh, Absolutely. Film.
1: Yeah, and I feel like if we're jumping over to. Um, in the mouth of madness, then there's something we talked about Lovecraftian and Cronenbergian. I hate saying that second one, it looks better in typeface by far. <laughs> Every time I say Same it out with loud, hey. yeah, I just want to like wedgie myself whenever I say it yeah. aloud. <laughs> But in both of those cases, you know, you get a lot more of that within the Mouth of Madness. That breathing door in particular is this extremely physical, unsettling image that that rip in the space time continuum, the veil of reality, whatever you want to call it with the book page at the end. There are these surrealist, almost um, Dolly-esque touches because even Carpenter had talked about how he was watching things like Chien Andalou, which I probably said very Midwestern wrong. But um, films like that where he was really influenced by, you know, the disorienting surrealist horror of it. There's that one – I'm thinking of the one episode earlier in the film where Sam Neill can see the old woman riding down the road twice – Mm-hmm. And that's almost kind of this Lynchian surrealist image, well, this ac- nightmare visual.
2: It's actually an old man and that young boy before he turns into an old man is Hayden Christensen.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, Hayden, Christian, Hayden Christensen ad, as paper boy before the role was <laughs> occupied by Brian Tyree Henry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're right. You're, you're yeah, dead right. He regenerated. <laughs> I, will, yeah. I won't
2: dispute any of that. Yeah.
0: Um you're welcome everyone. Um but no speaking of those scenes, one thing I did want to talk about with uh in The Mouth of Madness, and to a certain extent Prince of Darkness, is Carpenter's use of darkness. There is this wonderful feeling of like this this unsettling feeling of an abyss happening just beyond the frame or even beyond the action of the characters. Like in back in Prince of Darkness, most of like once it hits nighttime and they're a hold up in the church and like uh things like Wyndham's the the possessed Wyndham coming up to the window, like and talking to them through the window, being like, "I have a message. I don't think you're gonna like it," um, and just everything the inky blackness beyond that, and then like the like you said, the David Lynchian the, the Lynchian feel of the the scene with the old uh, the old paper boy uh, the, the paper man, if you will, mm, yeah. um, and it's a very lost highway a little bit yeah. where you see and, and again contributes to that Silent Hill feeling of like. That that unsettling feeling of driving down a long stretch of road where you can't see more than two or three feet in front of you, um, Carpenter is able to use that darkness really really well.
2: Yeah, totally. I think I think Gary B. Kibb. This is this is not his last movie, but it's probably his last good movie.
1: It'd be penultimate. Um, there'd be Village of the Damned right after this, and I believe right. that's the last right. one they did together. Um, but yeah, no, it it it, it is. It and captures... then he did the Librarians.
2: <laughs> oh, did he? The Noah Wiley movie. <laughs> Um, which is oh you know I, I've got to mention this I forgot the cinematographer for the ward no, he's, that's, sorry, that's he's gone happened, on anyway. he's gone on to do like the deuce and and stuff on, on like or the, the path on Amazon so like it, I, I don't know how much of it of that movie rides on that but yeah anywho also Robocop 3 and Double
1: Dragon mm. Double Dragon future Double... filmography season just on the yes! Double Dragon Double D oh my god five weeks <laughs> But no, I think one of the things that's really interesting with In the Mouth of Madness, especially as it relates to, you know, how it externalizes what is, in the case of Lovecraft, a very internal, intellectual kind of horror... I think one of the really cool things that Carpenter does is, yeah, he plays with darkness in all these remarkable ways, but he also uses the terror of horror happening in broad daylight really effectively in this film, particularly in the diner sequence at the beginning, where you can watch a nightmare literally strolling up to Sam Neill's window as he yammers on about, you know, gimmickry and scams oblivious.
0: Right. Uh, That's, again, like paradoxically, that's one of the great things about. Carpenter as a filmmaker is that he's able to make things seem really, really unsettling, even when all when, and when everything is lit, um, even just through mood and a lot of times through his score, which I'm sure we'll get into later. Um, yeah, even like scenes in in the daylight with Alice Cooper's character, like even yeah. in in midday, he seems creepy and unsettling. And the fact that you can see what's going on is is really, really unsettling.
2: That whole sequence when they're when they're finally getting to the church and the uh the dogs show up and the the kids there it's that false sense of safety when you you think oh well it's daytime i'm okay and it's like, no, you're not. Or when they yeah. even go to the inn, at, you know, and they're just checking in with this old woman and that painting's moving. And it's yeah. just like right. unnerving. It's,
1: it's the violation of those simple things you take for granted cinematically. And, yeah, the painting turning to stare at the book editor is one of the scariest moments in that wow. entire film because it's the understated scare. It's not going for the jump. It's not going for the shock. It's not even really going for gore, even though excerpts of the film are absolutely brutal. It's just disorienting. I talked in the first half about how there's a major sense of spatial disorientation because of how the film is cut. And when you're cutting a film in such a way where you create spatial disorientation on purpose, that's an incredible virtue, and that's great horror cinema. And if it feels like you're not doing this on purpose, sometimes you get 1998's Vampires. (laughs) Because there are editorial choices that I need to call okay. out about vampires in particular because even the ward, one of the things I will at least say for it is that it is competently assembled. Yeah, it is agreed. perfectly cromulent in at least that respect. Whereas we talked about this with Ghost of Mars previously, and I'll bring it up again in the case of vampires, but at some point in right around the turn of the millennium, Carpenter lost all interest in assembling a coherently edited film yeah. because – there are scenes in vampires that cut back and forth between one another so abruptly that I was sitting there recalling things I was yelled at for in film school.
0: Right, and it's just so uninspiring from a, from a cinematographic perspective, I guess. Just everything is very flat and even, evenly lit and not in that fun, bright, dynamic way where he's highlighting the horror of the mundane like in a lot of his other great 80s films. Mm-hmm. Um, it just feels like it was filmed on video and regurgitated onto an editing suite and put out on a VHS. Um, like, even, thing, even like, ostensibly cool images like James Woods walking resolutely away from an exploding motel feel so cheap.
1: Yeah, in general, this was reminding me a lot of... Um action series on basic cable yeah, this around very, this same Fu, the same time legend continues yeah like yeah, i it's... remember the shows that would air like b- right before monday night raw around paradise. this time yeah thunder in paradise starring cinematic james luminary woods, hulk hogan
0: this... <laughs> slash gawker killer where's james woods magic boat i ask you his robo boat his rowboat. You
2: no know, it definitely feels like something that i would turn on like like at you know 11 o'clock at night on USA or something. Yeah, you know? it's very
1: TNT. It absolutely does. There's something very, very tawdry about it, it, vampires. It's very yeah. re- renegade. Like, <laughs> silk <laughs>
0: stockings. <laughs> Nightman. La Feng like, Nikita. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but in general, like, there is a very, like, seedy again tawdry aesthetic to the movie that i don't think really suits it or arguably most movies yeah the one of the more bizarre and inexplicable sequences is the aftermath of the party scene (sighs) in which not only does james woods have to disassemble all of his friends one by one And not only are we asked to spend a solid three and a half minutes of scream time, by my timing and estimation, watching him do this, (laughs) but there are these strange... Again, they would be Lynchian edits if I felt they were on purpose, but it feels like we're ripping through a scene that was much longer yeah. in a way that makes it look ridiculous. It's
0: like those scenes in movies where someone's walking away from walking away from camera, and they keep like fading to them being further away, and you can tell like they just didn't think out how long it was going to take to walk away from something. Yes,
2: that's what it feels like. It absolutely feels like this. It took place over three minutes. But we're fading to make it seem like maybe it took longer. <laughs> just, it doesn't. It's, it's a it's a ridiculous. funny understanding of
0: montage. Yes. that's all I'll say.
1: It's it's certainly liberal with the medium at any rate. Yeah. But you know, are you accusing only... this of being the liberal media? No, oh. I and James Woods would never <laughs> accuse a <Never. of> James <laughs> no. Woods film of being the liberal media. That's I true. assure you. Yeah. But before we move on from sight. Lest we spend the next twenty minutes of the show just hating on vampires any further, <laughs> I want to bring up the lasting image, and I want to ask you to what your favorite single shot from any of these four movies was.
2: Uh, Mac, why don't you go first? Well, when you first said that, and when I was you know thinking about it earlier, I, I my mind went to Sam Neil at the end of it, *The Mouth of Madness*. However, uh after, have, having rewatched *Prince of Darkness*, my lasting shot is actually. Um, uh, you know distort a Freddy face uh, Lisa reaching out and reaching to the mirror saying father Then this the way that the light's hitting her and it's just it's so disturbing because her hair is like perfect you yeah. know and then she has this like bloody it's ba- very it's they very, live yeah it, it does it reminds exactly it like does. when you put on the glasses it's a little a little precursor right because it, it wasn't they live right after that yeah and it for some reason and and I also remember when I I saw so I saw you know Carpenter come through uh, I think at Tally Hall when they did the Lost Themes thing and they were you know they showed clips from the movie during that and that just stuck with me after that as well Um, so that's gotta be the, the thing that sticks with me the most I think yeah um
0: I would say I, in my heart of hearts, I would say, a, you know, a shot that we've already mentioned that um, that feeling of the hand going through the mirror and in that very Jean the, Cocteau or Fia squirted way like, and seeing like from the other side. And like Dom said, the hand reaching back. Right. But I, I think I want to highlight another shot that is very simple, very quick, but I think very effective and I think emblematic of Carpenter's incredible command of like horror kineticism, which I think it's when um, whoever is running towards... I think it's Ale- I think it's Lisa running towards Wyndham with, like, a pair of scissors. And you see a close-up of these scissors as she's running toward him. And you see... It's just a close-up of the scissors. And you see, like, the brick wall rushing past it. And I don't remember... I think I looked up how that shot was accomplished, where it was, like, sort of rear projection or something like that. But it's... Hmm. You can see, like, the the scissors... Almost frozen in time as the as the background is rushing behind it, and it feels almost anime if that makes any sense. And it's just it's very it's very simple, it's very straightforward, but so evocative and so immediately affecting that um, I really, really wanted to. I, I really feel like it's it's in microcosm what Carpenter can do best as a horror filmmaker.
1: Are we going to go full darkness here? What's your last scene? Well, I'm actually going to break it up and use the one that you stepped away from, which is that Uh, image of Sam Neill at the very end of In the Mouth of Madness. Because it's one of those rare, beautiful moments where a piece of performance can really say a great deal about the theme of the film that you've just seen. And the way in which this entire grotesque parable plays out across his face in only about 10, 15 seconds of screen time from mirth to rueful laughter to absolute existential horror all within all within this limited time frame is kind of incredible and i think it's one of the things that really puts the film together in a lot of respects and really gives emotional weight to it it's a horrifying note to go out on Mm -hmm. and it feels
0: like the experience of watching carpenter films in microcosm too
1: yeah where you're kind of repulsed by it, and you're laughing, and then you're left shattered by the implications of what's being discussed,
2: especially after the ward.
1: See, especially after the end, the end of "They Live." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and so speaking of horrifying notes, Whoa! Uh-huh. A segue. yeah, we did it. <laughs> Um, No, I do want to talk about sound a little bit and like not only scores here, but also sound design because there's a lot of really cool sound design happening in Prince of Darkness that if I I go back to that squicky feeling for a second, a lot of it is the sound and tone it achieves, which is a lot of silence cut by some of the most grotesque Foley art you could ever hear.
0: Yeah.
1: So in talking sound, I kind of want to lead into Prince of Darkness again, because this is a case where you have a really expansive sound, probably one of the last traditional, you know, Carpenter scores as we think of them.
2: Yeah, the Prince of Darkness score is great. I I was watching it with my friend Max, and he had this whole sound system set up. You know, the surround sound and everything. And I noticed that throughout the entire film, there is this pulsing bass beat yeah. that just under under. I mean, th- there is some silence, but when there, there is silence, it's used very well. But for the most part, it's just this constant. It's almost like the thing it's you like know, demonic that, heartbeat the pulsing, from beyond. The, the grade, pulsing you know. music and the thing you know, the don't you know, but but it's just it's just this constant kind of underlying. It's like someone just laid their hand down on on the keyboard and just left it there. But it it does it it sets the tone for the movie and the unnerved the unnervedness of it uh, throughout. And I think it's it's used just brilliantly throughout. Yeah, agreed.
0: It's a very classic Carpenter score where it's that, again, like that throbbing heartbeat of synth uh, in in, in amongst, you know, a lot of different ominous tones where I think we were talking about this earlier that uh, Carpenter's scores themselves don't feel like they're sort of Mickey Mouse to the action. Like they don't they're not very like moments heavy. It's like he decides on a suite of themes and sort of permeates them throughout. His films. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, and I would agree with that. And I think that in a similar but sonically different way, at least, In the Mouth of Madness is getting at that same idea where it, you know, it's, I would say it's a sparser sound than Prince of Darkness, certainly. But by that same token, it's also, you know, introducing these sort of shades, if anything, to the drama.
2: I love so right when In the Mouth of Madness started, there is that in the Mouth of Madness theme, which is super guitar heavy and just, you know, you know, like totally totally what I would want and expect from a score from vampires, but not from In the Mouth of Madness. So when it started, I thought I thought, oh God, I forgot that this was the score, although very memorable. It is not used in the movie at all I think it's only used in the opening credits and the end credits and that's a great thing because like you said it's a very quiet film but the 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 music that is there definitely serves it serves it better for that in that sense
1: Well, and it spikes in a way that Carpenter scores don't. And Clint, I really like that you bring up the bass tones in Prince of Darkness because, you know, in a lot of his films, especially with Escape from New York, Carpenter is doing kind of that undercurrent of sound, that mood creation through lower tones. That's mostly absent through In the Mouth of Madness in this really unnerving way because it's strangely, like, stately almost for a Carpenter score. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the reason why it works so
2: well is because people have been conditioned, or at least a, as a Carpenter fan, I've been conditioned for that score to really ride out the whole movie. I mean, I don't think there's a there's there's not a lot of moments of escape that aren't that doesn't have a score. I love listening to that score because it's all over the place. There's so many different themes, but here there are so many moments of you know Sam Neil walking down the street and he's seeing something disturbing in a, an alleyway, or you know. I, it, the usage of it is, is just, it's really, really well done. <laughs> I'm stumbling over myself, but yeah. I like the sparseness of it. It, it. it works for that kind of film. Well, there's a sparseness and sort of an ambience to a lot of
0: Carpenter's stuff. It's not very melodic. He's not Jerry Goldsmith. He's not going to, like, provide these dynamic leitmotifs. He's going to set a tone. And I think in, in these respects, at least, like, they they really, really accomplish establishing atmosphere,
1: I completely agree, and on that basis, let's talk about the tone of Vampires for (laughs) a minute, which is a very different tone, because Vampires, as we've talked about exhaustively in the past weeks, is part of Carpenter's late career electric guitar phase, in the same way Dylan went electric, so eventually did John.
0: Yeah, no, uh, the score for Vampires evokes the kind of mood that happens with somebody who, like, steps a few two in a, a few inches a few inches like too far from the urinal in hopes that other people will see how big his penis is
2: <laughs> so for me i felt like the score the like the the title track santiago it, it, to me it felt like you know it was like a, a an outtake from a Tony Scott's revenge or something like it did not feel like it it was for this film. Now I got to give credit to Carpenter because it is, it's, it's such a departure from anything that he's done before score wise. So it's kind of interesting to hear that like as a piece of music separate from the movie, you know, just listening to it on the anthology or something, but it, it, it just does not work for this movie. Well,
1: and what's, strain- what's even stranger, then, is it's not really of a piece with anything else in this movie in the same way as the In the Mouth of Madness theme, because here you get that, and then it gives way to an endless assault of these... Again, for lack of better phrasing, wank rock sounds. There's something very post grunge about the pseudo western sound that the film adopts. Yeah. That feels very disingenuous mm. to it.
0: It feels like that's what Carpenter thinks. Like that kind of post western thing would sound like, where it's like, oh, it's guitars, right? And it feels very, you know, very desert. You know, it, it sounds like very every...
1: 96 alt rock radio it's as well, though.
0: Dust Till Dawn score because that was Los Lobos. Um, doing that, uh, so I feel like maybe that was a deliberate capitalization. Yeah. yeah, maybe, or maybe just cross some cross pollination.
1: Well, and then if we're moving on from that score to then the score of Carpenter's eh. again to date last film, The Ward by Mark Killian, which I had to make notes as I was watching The Ward, so I would not forget the score of The Ward. Yeah. And I feel like
0: I
2: forgot it. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I, I think I vaguely remember some of the. Uh, at least the vague sound of the opening credits, because that's where the, like the score is really showcased, for lack of a better Dude, term. But it's
2: like I want to throw this out there. Now I forgot this. I I, listen, I watched this movie last week. You guys watched this movie today, right? <laughs> I
0: watched it last night. Yes. <laughs> okay, so I watched it
1: a couple <laughs> hours before I came here. God bless you, sir. Oh,
0: gosh. Uh,
2: but what else do you expect from the composer for Pitch Perfect? <laughs> I should say, and, and my favorite is Honey Three Dare to Dance. <laughs> Honey
0: Three Dare to Dance. <laughs> Uh, There's also uh, SMART, which is an acronym, S-M-A-R-T, Chase, Uh, Beyond Paradise, The Yoga Sutra, North by El Norte, um, Shark Killer, SEAL Team 8 behind Enemy Line.
1: Well, I can only inquire and hope that one, the word will not be John Carpenter's last film production, and two, (laughs) that... If it is, you know, we can we can maybe just erase it from <laughs> canon There's eventually. still hope. Uh,
0: Kurt Russell's on the rise again. What city could Snake Plissken escape from? Well, again, I escape mentioned... Escape from Cleveland.
1: I mentioned uh, last week Ghost of Mars was supposed to be the third escape movie, and it oh, would be escape from Earth. Right, <gasps> right. So that wherever we're going next, it has to be beyond Earth.
2: Okay, great, great. I don't know if they're going to do another escape film, but they are doing another... Big Trouble film, and they
1: said recently, I think that it's going to be a sequel of sorts, uh, but so also my, as of now, with none of Carpenter's involvement. The, so, okay,
2: well, yeah. that's news to me, and very sad because I was really looking forward to an old Jack Burton teaming up with The Rock. Whereas, you know how because he's not—he's the protagonist of that movie, but not really. I mean, he's, he's the, the sidekick. He's the sidekick that movie, and so he would be the sidekick in this movie, and The Rock would be the lead. That would have been great. Now that he's got no involvement, I don't see that happening and I'm very very. So what would the title be? Would it be Bigger Trouble in Little China or would it be Big Trouble
0: in Medium China?
1: Bigger trouble in smaller China.
0: Okay. I prefer Medium China.
2: I think uh, it's going to be big trouble in in little Italy.
3: Little
0: Italy. No. I think they're going to switch I'm going to swap it what, out. They're going to switch what it weird up. Weird cultural stereotypes <laughs> with the
2: Danny trading? Aiello cameo.
1: Yes. I don't know. Just,
2: How does that You know I wasn't on no, that. No, they episode. just have like giant pizzas, oh, uh, pizza hats. So, (laughs) sorry, (laughs)
1: before we draw things to a close, though, you know, Clint mentioned earlier that he is the host of the podcast Alka Hollywood as well and as is custom over on Alka Hollywood clint always fixes a cocktail along with every episode and for the taping you've just heard he made one for us as well um to
0: be just to be completely clear just in case he's listening to this Jared makes the majority of the cocktails on this but I do oh. also dabble um so I decided well because I, you were talking to me about like recording the last one you did and you were like trying to fashion a cocktail for that so I was like oh maybe I'll do one for this so I decided in final five minutes to throw together gin the vermouth of madness um (laughs) and to be fair we have done in the mouth of madness on alka hollywood and we and jared did craft a gin the mouth of madness here but i wanted to take the pun a one step further so uh this is actually just like an ounce of Ginever of bull's Ginever, which is just a kind of gin um one and a half ounces of my own chai infused vermouth which all you have to do is take sweet vermouth soak it in some like bags of like red chai tea for a few days and then like (laughs) sift that out. Um, then I'll keep forever and it's nice and red and stuff. Um, and then like a half ounce of grenadine and, uh, you know, stir that in a shaker with ice, um, strain that into a rocks glass, top it with some LaCroix of your choice. So you can get that faint whisper of flavor, uh, just like the whisperings of, uh, an interdimensional being trying to take over your body. And, uh, uh, yeah oh and some fire and damnation bitters just to uh, to hint at the uh, apocalyptic portents that are contained within
1: well, thank you for the cocktail and thank all of you for listening and thank the two of you for joining me on this, our fourth and penultimate episode of I'm Filmography welcome. John Carpenter. You are welcome, Clint. <laughs> um, I want to thank, as always, Kat Blackard and Michael Rothman at the Consequence Podcast Network for their invaluable help in keeping the show going. You can come to our Facebook page, Facebook slash Filmography Podcast for all pertinent updates and future announcements. You can find me at Consequences Sound Again and on Twitter at D. Suzanne Mayer. I'm mostly just liking gritty memes if you find me on there yeah. these days. Um, where can the goodly people of the internet find you, Clint? Oh, uh, you can find me on Twitter at
0: Hollywood, And again, as the co-host of the podcast and editor-in-chief of the website Hollywood, which you can find at alcohollywood.com I'm also the co-host and producer of Nathan Rabin's Happy Cast, uh, the bi-weekly podcast I do with uh, esteemed culture writer Nathan Rabin. You can find that at nathanrabin.com.
2: And you can find me at the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast, as well as the Halloweenies, which will be wrapping up very soon
1: as the new Halloween movie comes out this week. As always, we are not the only CPN show you can check out. There's also This Must Be the Gig, Lior Phillips interviewing series with your favorite musical artists. There is Halloweenies, as Mac mentioned, which will be coming to an end of its limited run soon. There is the Losers Club, which will never be coming to the end of any of its runs and will live forever. And there is State of the Empire, our long-running Star Wars program. As always, you can leave us a rating as well on iTunes, Podchaser, and as of this taping, also on Spotify. Very exciting things. You can also find Consequence of Sound on Twitter at Consequence and Facebook slash Consequence of Sound. Filmography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcast content at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded, produced, and engineered in Chicago, Illinois, by me, Dominic Suzanne Mayer. And we will see you all next week for our fifth and final episode of Filmography John Carpenter.